So, but this week, as we were home in the middle of the cold and the freezing weather, um, it, I started thinking back about other times that uh, I'd been out in the cold winter weather when this side I was nice inside and, and warm. I had some friends in high school, and when we had been a semester in college, we decided to go backpacking uh, to the gorge. And so we went out and put on our backpacks. And back uh, in those days, we didn't have these apps that we could always check on the weather all the time. So we just listened to the weather guys, or we didn't. And uh, on the way in, it started snowing. And we thought, eh, we'll be okay. And so we went in and did our normal trek and uh, went up the side of a hill. And we didn't take tents. We just had sleeping bags. And we slept out under the stars. The Fire was a little hard to start that night because of the snow and some of the damp. Um, and then we noticed that one of our friends, uh, where I had borrowed a nice sleeping bag from a friend, it was one of those mummy bags that you get inside and you're, you're covered up. My friend had his G.I. Joe sleeping bag uh, from when he was a kid. Uh, so in the middle of the night, when it got very, very cold, uh, we decided that we had to take some turns. And so we rotated through this bag and through the night. Uh, we managed not to freeze, um, but it was not the most fun uh, camping trip that evening. The next morning when we got up and we walked around, though, it was worth it. The whole place was just covered in this gleaming white uh, ice and snow all over the place. The river uh, was uh, kind of churning underneath, and ice was floating down across it, and there was this beautiful... Uh, waterfall that was spraying over that was filled with icicles and at the bottom somehow had over and again built up these tiny little pellets of ice and we were just astounded at the beauty that was all around us when we took time to be still in nature. Uh, I've been reading a lot of Mary Oliver lately and you'll see her throughout this service too as she um, uh, an amazing poet passed away just a, a week ago. And in one of her poems, she said this, pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. I think we're good at telling about things, but sometimes the paying attention is hard. Uh, and when we can take some time to pay attention and to be astonished, amazing things can happen and we can see things anew. So this morning, as we think about silence, we think about that gift to us. Let's take a few moments to pay attention, to be astonished. As we begin, we light this candle celebrating the presence of Christ in us, among us, and beyond us. Will you stand and join with me in the call to worship? <clears throat> when winter grass crinkles under our steps, when trees wait patiently, gilt and white, when birds rummage through fallen leaves, When the sky sits quietly in its gray overcoat. When the streets are painted in salty swirls. And now let's pass the peace of Christ. 
catch you all before you sit down, but uh, you can stand back up if you want, and as you're able, and we're going to sing together, uh, you'll find uh, in your hymnals number 14, For the Beauty of the Earth. Psalm 71, the first six verses. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. 
my praise is continually of you.
Thanks, Aaron. There are times when a sermon can go horribly wrong. I've preached a few of those. Likely you've heard a few as well. I had a roommate from seminary who told me about one of his first sermons that he preached in his home state of Tennessee. He invited his girlfriend, his friends, his parents, and they were all assembled for this wonderful sermon that he had put together on the topic of dealing with guilt. And the line that he intended to say was, even when it's not your fault. But that's not what he said. In fact, I don't have the leniency of telling you exactly what he said, but if you can replace the letters UL with the letter R, you will know what came out of his mouth. Immediately realizing his mistake, again intending, this time with more distinction and more clarity, he slowed down and wanting to say, even when it's not your fault, said the very same thing all over again. His girlfriend turned bright red. His best friend, sitting close to the center aisle, almost fell into it, shaking with laughter. His mom and dad came up to him as gently as they knew how to put it and said, son, maybe you ought to think about a different line of work to go into. Well, about this time of year, we are beginning with Jesus in the early part of his ministry, and we are looking at the third and fourth chapter of Luke and that familiar story of the early parts of Jesus' ministry and remembering at Nazareth, his hometown, where this sermon goes horribly wrong. But it was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was not an embarrassment, at least not for the preacher. So let's review. First, Luke chapter 3, we learn of Jesus' baptism, a moment where the Son of God completely identifies with the well-intended but often frustrated, sinful, and fragile lives we all share. The very lives that Jesus came to save, he became one with us in a very public way by entering into the waters of repentance and renewal and a voice comes from heaven in support of this humble participation by Jesus with all of us saying you are my beloved words every single person needs to hear from the lips of God you are my beloved and immediately afterwards Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness here in the desert, speaking to the tempter about his understanding and security within the root of God's love. And in the solitude and silence of the desert, Jesus faces down the tempter. He renews his grounding, his complete trust in God's providence, even if it's going to mean for him physical suffering or delayed timing or the misunderstanding and contempt of those around him. He was up to something. 
And he was preparing for that something in the wilderness. So now he's back home. And he's delivering this sermon. And it's going extremely well. Everyone's applauding his eloquence. And the text reads, all were amazed at the words coming from his mouth. I've not had a sermon like that. That I can easily remember. Or at least someone's telling me about that. So what goes wrong? Well, he had just finished reading Isaiah's prophecy of the year of Jubilee, God's favor, where the blind receive sight, the captives discover release, the oppressed find relief, the poor find consolation. That sounds great, doesn't it? And you hear the amens from the back pews. Good, right. Those who need something will get it. And we want you to do that for us. Do for us what we've been hearing you did in Capernaum. Now that's interesting in part because up until this point in Luke's presentation, we haven't heard anything about Jesus in Capernaum. That there are some missing gaps, that Jesus has done some things that aren't always completely recorded, but he's jumped in the story from the wilderness experience for us to this sermon, but somewhere in between, somewhere around his life, he was over on the north side of the Sea of Galilee doing all these good things for those folks, and now Jesus is back home, and his hometown crowd is thinking, good, all those things we heard you doing over there in Knoxville, or what town do you not like? <laughs> do that for us over here. Do that back home. Do that where we are. I'm sorry, I should just use Gainesville, but that's okay. I'll, I'll wait for Mark D'Alba at the second service to talk about Gainesville. We know you, Jesus. We helped raise you. Why would you not help us before you help others? If there are good things to be had, then we are definitely the ones to receive them. And it's precisely at this point where things get dicey. And it seems the event falls off the tracks. Because Jesus then tells two stories from the prophetic witness of Elijah and Elisha. In one story, Elijah helped a widow from Sidon. And in the second story, Elijah's successor, Elisha, helped a military leader in Syria. Now, neither the widow nor the general were a part of the people of Israel. They were outsiders. They belonged to the groups that everyone hated. Sidon was full of unclean Gentiles. The general had led a war against the Nazarenes in the country of Israel. He was the leader of the opposition party. And Jesus is talking about God's favor for him and suggesting that if God's going to do a mighty work, it's going to be with people like that, not with the hometown crowd. And that congregation that just a few moments ago were filled with glowing comments of appreciation and affirmation were now, the text says, filled with rage. He had gone from preaching to meddling 
they're stirring up a mess. And they grabbed Jesus by force, and they were wanting to throw him off the cliff on the edge of town. And somehow he escaped. We don't know how, but Jesus is now back in the fishing village of Capernaum, performing other miracles, building his team of disciples. Now what can that story tell us about God's will, about our place in God's story, about how we are to live our lives with modern day challenges? First, it speaks to me of the power and importance of disciplined silence. Jesus, Jesus does nothing in his ministry without carving out for himself profound moments of solitude, prayer, and silence. Not only does he spend those 40 days in the wilderness, but we often learn of Jesus retreating from the crowds or even getting up early and rising before the disciples so that he could have these moments where he could again hear that echo of the words that were brought to him at baptism. You are my beloved. This importance of time alone with the Holy One who loves us. It is in the silence of the heart, Mother Teresa says, that God speaks. It is in the silence of the heart that God speaks. And Brennan Manning is clear on the message that God says over and over again in his book, Abba's Child. Silent solitude makes true speech possible and personal, he writes. If I am not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness of others. If I am estranged from myself, I am likewise a stranger to others. What radio station or television station or serious radio station or internet site or blog or TV station is our lives tuned into? Where do we go back for our refreshment, our renewal? How can we get our minds and hearts clear? Whose voice can we hear? In all of this, we learn that Jesus has come for the widows, the lepers, the outsiders. And Jesus gets into trouble because he proclaims that God cares for people not like us all the time, but for those who are on the periphery who are different than us. As we listen to Christian conversations in our culture, it seems we are hearing two competing messages. One Christian group suggests it's time to circle the wagons. The other Christian group suggests it's time to widen the circle. Which one's right? Is it time to protect the gospel? Or is it time to proclaim the gospel? What are we to do? How are we to know? I'm calling us together as we move into Lent for the twin spiritual practices of listening and discernment. 
to seek to hear clearly what God might be saying and to discern God's place into our lives and into our world. And it all starts with sacred silence. For this world is far too busy, far too noisy, far too many distractions, and we can choose to unplug, to unwind, to disentangle, to disengage, not as a means of escape, but a means of preparation for re-participation into the world. And the first battle we must face in the wilderness of our solitude must be faced perhaps every day, freely given to all that wish to participate. It is the love relationship God shares with the beloved, those who are willing as an act of faith to hear those words, you are beloved, and to participate into that proclamation and to accept it and believe it and share it. I think when we do that work well, we're less likely to end up saying the wrong things, whether it's in a sermon or otherwise. We're less likely to stumble up upon ourselves. Oh, it's not conflict-free. It will put you in opposition with your community, with others, when you stand up for those on the outside but it will also make your hearts burn brighter and your knowledge of God's will become clearer and your advocacy for the marginalized to become more effective. Reflect and respond this morning. I invite you to sing uh, with me number 450, Be Thou My Vision.
this time I'll play quietly for a while and we'll do a responsive reading together and then have some moments for, uh, for reflection uh, with some music playing. But this morning, in honor of our discussion on silence, we're going to take some time to actually be silent. And, uh, and since we haven't had enough Mary Oliver this morning, I don't think yet, uh, you'll find another uh, poem from Mary Oliver printed in your orders of worship. I'll read that and uh, let that be our invitation into a time of silence this morning. And then you'll see uh, there's an icon, uh, an image on the back of your, 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 um, your orders of worship and also uh, another quote there. Uh, but also on the screens, you'll see some images of simple things that you might see around you. Um, and I invite you to use this time to reflect, to pray, to be present in this moment, uh, to acknowledge um, God who is with us, among us, and beyond us this morning. After we have a few moments of silence, uh, reflection together, I'll come back up and play some music quietly, and then we'll uh, close us in prayer and we'll sing our final song together. You're welcome at this time to get up and move. You'll find places on either side now uh, with uh, candles that you can light if you want that to be part of your prayer this morning. Uh, and certainly in our silence, there is always the noise of Nicholasville Road and everything else around us, but we can let that be part of our recognition of all that is here and uh, beautiful among us. So let's begin our time now with this poem. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest. It's a doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak.
ask you this morning that you would give us the grace to listen. That you would take away our fears that we may have of the stillness and the quiet. Know that in the midst that you are present. down to the heart of our reality, we will find your presence, we will find your persistent love, we will find your grace, we will find your welcome, and we will hear the words, beloved. grace to be attentive to you in the midst of a world that rushes past so quickly. We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. So glad that you have joined us for worship this morning, that you've been able to, to be a part as we join together hearts this morning. And now as we go, we're going to sing one last song together. You'll find this on number 543 in your hymnals. God be the love to search and keep me. I invite you to stand as you're able as we sing this song together.
Thank you.